I'm Mark Peterson, and this is Before, During, and After, a podcast from FEMA. In 2012, FEMA created the WIA capability, or Wireless Emergency Alerts capability, to send alerts and warning messages through the agency's integrated public alert and warning system, also called IPAWS. If you have a cell phone, you've likely heard one of these alerts. And on the other end of that alert have been emergencies of all kinds. In fact, over 62,000 WIA alerts have been sent by alerting authorities across the country. On today's episode, we'll talk about the countless ways the program has saved lives and where the program is headed with Antoine Johnson, a FEMA employee that has led the program since its inception 10 years ago. So FEMA is celebrating the 10-year anniversary of the wireless emergency alerts and to talk about some of the just incredible achievements that uh, have occurred over the last 10 years. We have Antoine Johnson from the Integrated Public Alert and Warning System Program. Thanks so much, uh, Antoine, for joining me. Thank you, Mark, and thanks for having me this afternoon. So we're going to spend some time talking about just uh, what a great accomplishment 10 years of this program has been. But before we do, let's talk a little bit about uh, what the integrated public alert and warning system is and what it's not. Um, so talk me through what the program is and what it means to uh, alerting authorities. Good. Thank you, Mark. And we'd be happy to do that. Uh, you know, just to, just to step back a little in history uh, to kind of arrive at where we are today. You know, we go all the way back to like 1951, 71 years ago when, you know, we just started to explore this concept of emergency alerting, uh, which began with uh, the Conrad program, otherwise known as the, as the Control of Electromagnetic Radiation Program, established by President Truman. Uh, and from that time, we have continued to evolve alerting uh, in the nation over the last 71 years uh, to arrive at a point in time where we think we have a fairly robust and comprehensive alerting capability to serve the needs of communities who are faced with threats to their safety. Uh, and so IPAWS is a integrated, interoperable uh, capability that really came about as a result of an executive order that was issued by President Bush in 2006. Uh, and that was done in response to a fair amount of criticism uh, that uh, the federal government, state and locals as well, received in response to Hurricane Katrina. Uh, and so with that, President Bush issued Executive Order 13407, which tasked uh, the Secretary of Homeland Security, uh, of course, which was delegated down to, the, to FEMA to implement, but tasked us with developing this integrated, comprehensive alert and warning capability uh, to, first of all, ensure that the president could communicate with the American public under all conditions. And then secondly, with the passage of the IPOS Modernization Act of 2015, signed into law by President Obama, tasked us with extending these same national capabilities down to state and local governments for their use. And of course, uh, as we look at how uh, alerting has evolved over the last 71 years, uh, the initial capability consisted of just broadcast uh, television and radio. Uh, and so that was a primary means of reaching people when there was some potential threat to their safety. 
And of course, a little later in time came NOAA Weather Radio for for severe weather warnings and things like that that the National Weather Service would issue in response to severe weather events. But with the uh, creation of the program really in 2006 by executive order, uh, it tasked us with evolving or improving upon our capability. Uh, And uh, almost coincidentally with that, the Congress passed what was called the WARN Act, the Warning and Response Network Act, uh, and uh, tasked the FCC with writing rules and really, uh, I think, encouraged the wireless carriers to participate in what was called at that time the commercial mobile alerting system. And of course, that has evolved and the name has changed to Wireless Emergency Alerts Today, uh, which is a tremendous capability that's being utilized by all 50 states and over uh, 15 or 1,600 uh, counties to include some private sector entities uh, that are leveraging that service to keep people informed about threats in, in, in their communities. I think that anybody who is a fan of history is just going to, you know, love kind of thinking about what the the landscape was years ago and, um, you know, between the Cold War and um, and and sort of evolving that that alert and warning system out of that um, out of those events. So I'm, I'm thinking, you know, as you evolved it to the wireless emergency alert capability, you know, what were, what were things like uh, pre-2012 um, that maybe evolved it to uh, thinking about having wireless emergency alerts? Right. So pre-2012, prior to, you know, our launch of wireless emergency alerts, uh, there was a very limited capability. I mean, you know, we had radio, we had television, uh, the National Weather Service had NOAA Weather Radio. Uh, but in terms of being able to reach people wherever they were uh, and regardless of what they were doing was extremely limited. Right. So if you weren't listening to the radio or watching TV, then your means of being notified about any potential threat uh, that was around the corner was, you know, extremely limited. And so uh, the, the, the breadth uh, and the depth of information that could be provided over that source uh, it certainly pales in comparison to what's being done today. Uh, in fact, uh, with the emergency alert system, uh, as it existed back during the 19, uh, late 1950s and 60s, as well as the 70s. Uh, you, there was one message that was issued, uh, text scroll for certainly for TV would uh, come across the TV, you would hear the message and then that information would disappear. And so if you were out of the room or doing any, busy doing anything else, once that information played, it perished and you couldn't get it back. Uh, and so it left a, a huge portion of the country uh, uninformed about these events uh, if they happened to miss that in- initial message. Uh, and so with that, uh, it, it, it really left us, uh, I would say, poorly prepared. Uh, to ensure the uh, the American public was uh, aware of what was taking place around them, as well as the protective actions in response to uh, those those potential threats. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the power to have those alerts just pop up uh, in a device that you have that everybody is carrying around with them every every minute of the day, and uh, often right next to us when we sleep, uh, is just a really powerful tool. Yeah, absolutely. So you, you mentioned earlier about the role of the FCC and then, of course, obviously FEMA. So w- can you talk through the different federal players that are part of unrolling um, an advancement like WIA and, you know, ultimately the the total IPAWS program? No, absolutely, Mark. And, and uh, one of the things that President Bush 
uh, did uh, when he issued Executive Order 13407 in 2006 was that he he recognized or the administration recognized that uh, in order to be successful in this area, it required not only the implementers of this technology to engage in this process, but it also required that the regulators be involved as well. Uh, and so our partners down at the Federal Communications Commission uh, certainly has responsibility for regula regulating uh, the broadcast industry as well as our wireless partners. Uh, and then so it's, it's incredibly important that they be engaged in all that we are doing with regards to ensuring that the American public's needs are being met. And not just the American public, because we have a number of visitors to our country to visit our, our, our national landmarks and our parks and everything else. And so with the advancements that have been made over the last few years, uh, we're also able to seamlessly reach uh, transient populations here as well. Uh, but back doing, uh, uh, you know, taking a look at our federal partners, the FCC from a regulatory perspective to, to write the regulations, the rules and the technical requirements for implementing these capabilities is, is extremely important. Uh, the National Weather Service and being able to leverage their 1,000 transmitters across the country to be able to send not only uh, uh, alerts or warnings about severe weather events, uh, but to allow for state and locals to send non-weather emergency messages over that same platform. Uh, and then we have the Department of Commerce that we're partnering with for early earthquake warning, uh, joining in that uh, early earthquake warning census suite out on the West Coast to be able to deliver uh, early earthquake warnings to people who may be affected by those events. Uh, so that's another one, and it's not just our federal partners, but certainly with early earthquake warning, uh, the University of Cal Berkeley, uh, as well as the U.S. Geological Survey and Cal uh, California uh, Office of Emergency Services. Uh, and so it takes, you know, we, we talk about a whole of community response to various types of events. Uh, this requires engagement at every level of government. Um, whether it be federal, state, local, our municipalities and cities, uh, to really make this capability work and keep people keep people informed about and potential threats to their safety. I, I loved how you kind of categorized or uh, brought together all of the different players that uh, are part of this. But uh, let's talk a little bit about the users, um, the, the individuals that are um, charged with putting out information uh, and alerts. We, we support roughly 1,700 users, and what are their responsibilities? How do we um, authorize them to uh, utilize the system and push out information? Right. So, Mark, today we have just over 1,700 alerting authorities who have been approved uh, to utilize uh, IPOS services. Uh, all 50 states are connected in and leveraging these services, about 1,650 uh, uh, local counties, uh, municipalities, some city uh, level governments are, are uh, leveraging these services as well. Uh, and we also have some airport authorities across the country. If you uh, uh, watch the news and was following what was taking place out at San Francisco International Airport, the system was used to notify travelers of uh, a potential, uh, uh, or not a potential, but a suspicious package that warranted an evacuation of the facilities. Uh, so uh, 
uh, it's not not just government entities. There are private sector uh, entities that that leverage these services as well uh, that, to keep people informed. Um, but it's a fairly simple process to gain access to iPods. I mean, it's if you have a uh, if you are charged with keeping your community informed about threats to their safety and other type of events that events that care uh, that occur in communities, then you can certainly leverage these iPod services. And as simple as as simple as a four-step process. First, you enter into a uh, an alert. A potential alerting authority would enter into an agreement with FEMA to become a uh, what we call a collaborative operating group user, uh, which basically just establishes their presence within the system, allows them to share information with other collaborative operating group users, uh, and then uh, the second step is to. Uh, enter into an agreement to become a public alerting authority, which as part of that agreement, that requires that that agreement be reviewed. Uh, and I won't say approved, but certainly coordinated with a state level official who can uh, vouch or validate that the person requesting access to iPods for public alerting, uh, one is authorized to do so, and not only authorized to do so, but authorized to do so for the geographic area that they're requesting. Uh, and then the third step is to uh, obtain a tool that uh, complies with the common alerting protocol. Uh, that particular protocol was developed by the Organization for Structured Information Systems and one that we adopted for IPAWS use. Uh, in fact, we uh, included within that particular standard uh, what's called the IPAWS USA profile, which defines basically the characteristics and all of the criteria that would constitute a valid alert or warning uh, that would be issued through the IPAWS system. And and then the last step is to take our IPAWS uh, IS-247 course that is uh, hosted by the uh, Emergency Management Institute, uh, EMI. Uh, and once that's done and that certificate is provided to us, uh, we will issue that alerting authority a digital certificate and turn on all of the requisite accesses within the IPAWS open platform for emergency networks. Antoine, since the um, program, since wireless emergency alerts have, uh, you know, uh, been unveiled 10 years ago, have the types of uh, alerts changed over time? I mean, did we maybe start with uh, weather events and then have expanded from there? Yes, the first uh, set of alerts that actually came through IPAWS uh, as wireless emergency alerts were severe weather warnings that were issued by the National Weather Service. But shortly thereafter, the, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children became a user of IPAWS uh, for the purpose of issuing AMBER alerts in response to missing children. And uh, the first recovery was in the state of Minnesota. Baby Carlos was recovered in the month of June. Uh, and uh, the rest is history. And so we, even with that program, we've seen child recoveries that were typically taken sometimes months or days uh, be cut down to as, as little as minutes uh, when the AMBER uh, program uh, utilizes wireless emergency alerts to push that information into the hands of people across the country who can serve as law enforcement eyes and ears to identify either a vehicle or the, or the person or child that, that went missing. Um, but, you know, we've seen kind of an evolution in the way that the system is being used, especially wireless emergency alerts, as it relates to some of the more recent events that uh, the nation has faced, for example, COVID. We saw uh, just over 600 messages that were related to COVID-19 protective actions that were issued by the Center for Disease Control, as well as the White House Task Force for COVID-19. 
uh, things ranging from uh, stay-at-home orders uh, to uh, things like you know where vac where vaccination sites could be found or other protective measures that uh, the community could take to protect themselves uh, from uh, you know the COVID-19 virus. Uh, in addition to that, we saw during the murder of, of George uh, Floyd, you know, a fair amount of civil unrest in our major cities across the country where law enforcement officers, mayors and things like that were using the system to issue curfew orders, uh, as well as to inform people about police activities in those communities. Uh, and so it's been a tremendous kind of evolution over the last few years, it's certainly since 2012 and how the emergency management and public safety community is utilizing these out-of-pause services. Yeah, I mean, you you certainly highlighted a couple of great successes, but uh, you know, in the in the ten years, there's got to be even more. Um, so, you know, what are some more successes that uh, really come to mind uh, in the unique uses? No, absolutely. Hey, Mark, I mean, you know, I kind of brushed over the Amber program and, uh, you know, Amber alerts being issued over wireless emergency alerts. So let me just share a couple of statistics about that. Uh, prior to us launching uh, wireless emergency alerts in April of 2012, uh, the Amber program in terms of, you know, the public's ability to, to receive text-based alerts on their mobile devices, uh, that program was run by CTIA as the wireless organization. And they operated that program for 10 years at a cost of $1 million a year and did not have one child recovery attributed to that particular program. In fact, they only had 750,000 subscribers nationally uh, who had signed up to receive uh, Amber Alerts on their mobile devices. When we launched uh, wireless emergency alerts in April of 2012, we gave the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, as well as state police and others, access to about 293, mil uh, 293 million phones instantly. And so with that type reach and having that information in the hands of the public when it comes to a missing child, uh, and in many cases now with uh, silver alerts for older adults who may be missing, uh, certainly those with Alzheimer's and uh, dementia type issues who go missing, uh, we have seen that the system has been used in response to those types of events as well. And so since April of 2012, we've seen that 123 children have uh, been recovered and it's been directly attributed to wireless emergency alerts and that amber message appearing on the mobile device, uh, which has been a tremendous success. And not only that, you know, with uh, kind of the, the, the EAS portion of getting that information out over radio and television, you know, you have to be at home to, to get that type of information or in your automobile or have a, a portable radio with you. Whereas, uh, the majority of the population, I think I'm safe in saying, carries that mobile device on their person every day and pays, you know, strict attention to the type of information that comes across it. And uh, so, you know, that's tremendous reach. And I think it's given, you know, law enforcement and the National Center uh, a very effective tool uh, in, you know, the recovery of children, uh, certainly down at the local level for missing people uh, in these blue alert, not blue alerts, but silver alerts and others that are being issued. Uh, and now there's some consideration for making Ashante alerts available through wireless emergency alerts and iPods. Uh, and so we'll see as, you know, conditions change in our community, uh, we'll see new uh, kind of new ways in which this technology is being used to serve the needs of our communities. 
Antoine, we have a uh, pretty ambitious uh, strategic plan, as, as you know, and I think IPAWS really just kind of fits very well into a number of the goals, um, but specifically uh, leading uh, the communities that we serve in climate resilience. And so, you know, maybe you could talk a little bit about how IPAWS plans to fit into uh, the climate adaptation and resilience conversation as we move forward. So when, when, when I spoke about new uses of the system, Mark, uh, we're seeing now take the severe weather that's happening, you know, out on the West Coast in the uh, the middle of the country with these high temperatures that they're experiencing right now. We're seeing that these high heat warnings are being uh, issued uh, across the country just to keep keep people advised advised of the potential uh, hazards associated with uh, these increased temperatures that we're seeing that many would say are attributed to climate change. Uh, so that's one way in which it's used. Certainly, there's been a lot of discussion in the media and, and with other uh, entities uh, regarding uh, wildfires and how frequently, frequently they are occurring. Uh, and so some of the wildfires in California, as well as Oregon and other states, we're seeing that these technologies are being used, certainly wireless emergency alerts. And some of the preparedness plans that have been developed by our state and local governments are, have changed to include uh, IPAWS and wireless emergency alerts uh, and those uh, preparedness plans. And so at one point in time, you may think about, you know, if you go back to like the Tubbs fires, uh, the system was being used to basically tell people to evacuate, in which case, you know, when you're hit with that type of information at, at a moment's notice, you don't have a lot of, you know, time to, to kind of gather documents or prepare for the actual evacuation. But we've seen things kind of... Uh, change over the last few years where now uh, public safety officials are providing advance warning to people, notifying them that they may have to evacuate, which certainly then gives them a little bit of time to kind of gather, you know, important papers or to maybe make a little run to the bank to get some additional cash that they may need. Uh, and then those officials are following up with the actual evacuation warning. And uh, so that is providing a, a little lead time and just making people aware that, this, that there's this potential threat to their safety from fires and that they may have to evacuate uh, and then providing them with the, the actual evacuation warning uh, as things continue to, to, to progress. Uh, so, you know, as, as it relates to climate change, we know that that's having an impact according to the authorities on these wildfires. Certainly the number of stores, storms, severe storms that we're seeing uh, across the country and in areas that have not experienced those types of, uh, the severity of those type storms, uh, we see the system is being used more and more, and certainly from a National Weather Service perspective, more effectively to make sure people are informed and, and kept updated uh, about those events. Yeah, I mean, uh, and I think with that, and you know, I've, some other things that call to mind uh, just in support of that strategic plan, you know, just the ability to reach underserved populations. Have you given any additional thought to that? Yeah, absolutely, Mark. And, and uh, I, I had the opportunity, uh, what, three weeks now ago, uh, three weeks ago, uh, to travel out to Alaska and uh, 
I had the opportunity to travel along the Yukon River and visit with many of the tribal nations that live along the, the Yukon uh, to gain a better appreciation for some of the challenges that uh, they have from a communications uh, perspective. And so I, it was a very enlightening experience in that uh, while we take for granted uh, a lot of the communications infrastructure that we have here, uh, the folks out there on the Yukon have very little infrastructure. And even if they have it, it's, it's extremely dated. And, uh, and, and one of the tribal chiefs said to me while I was there, you know, that uh, although I was bringing all of this wonderful information about APAWS, uh, they were certainly hampered by the technology, of, by the communications infrastructure there. Uh, and he said to me, uh, while you're providing all of these services to the lower 48, we're entitled to the same information here. And I think that speaks directly to one of the strategic goals and our strategic plan and that of equity and ensuring that people have equal access to this information regardless of where they are. Uh, and so one of the things that I'm addressing here in the IPOS program office to ensure that we're providing equal access is we're developing a ubiquitous alerting environment where we can put all of this emergency information either over broadcast airwaves or any other transport that's capable of carrying this. And then uh, any uh, any appliance that's listening for that type of information can then pull it down and present it to the end user, which means we can reach people regardless of who they are, where they are, or what they might be doing. Uh, and certainly, you know, for some of the basic infrastructure associated with our terrestrial capabilities, uh, that provides a lot of promise, but we've got to take advantage of our satellite capabilities as well. And so we're having those discussions with a, a number of uh, communications satellite providers uh, to see if we can extend those services into underserved and in many cases underrepresented communities as well. Uh, the other thing that we're doing and talking to our tribal governments and some of our other state and local authorities is giving people an opportunity uh, to participate in the process as we develop our strategic plans, as we develop our program plans uh, to be more responsive to their needs. Yeah, I think that's a great point at which to, you know, sort of think into the future and ask, uh, what does the future look like for iPods, for emergency alert systems, and uh, for wireless emergency alert systems? Absolutely. I, I think this ubiquitous alerting concept is going to, will go a long way. I mean, we are kind of teetering right on the border of that concept, but there's still a lot of work to do. Uh, oftentimes we find ourselves working within, you know, individual technology providers uh, to leverage those technologies, which means, you know, there's this one-to-one -one relationship that's forged and then we spend a, a significant amount of time uh, helping them to, one, modify their systems or adapt their systems uh, to meet the needs of, of our communities, which is inclusive of our access and functional needs community, as well as those without an understanding of the English language. But the approach that we've been taking over the last few months is to work with kind of global communications providers, right? Not just the, the ones that have kind of niche markets in the country and in other locations, but we want to work with the global providers. You know, think about the automobiles that, you know, we all drive and there's certainly millions of those on the road. Uh, one of the ways are, are uh, threats that uh, really uh, people don't think about, but that results in the most casualties uh, most times is flash flooding, right? So, uh, we've been talking to GM and we're in final uh, stages of testing with them to be able to push emergency alerts into GM automobiles over OnStar so that, 
if an alert comes in, of course, it has all of the geographic data associated with where that event is occurring, then we can, through OnStar services, route the uh, uh, the the driver or the uh, uh, the public around those type of events so that you know that threat is mitigated because now there's alternate routing to avoid that potential threat. I mean, it sounds like in, in really exciting stuff, but also just looking back over the last 10 years, it's really just uh, made such an am amazing impact in um, creating a much more safe environment for citizens uh, throughout the nation. And so uh, th thank you so much for Absolutely. kind of recapping all that and congratulations for 10 years and uh, looking forward to a lot of incredible improvement over the next 10 years. Hey, we're looking, I mean, you know, our, we, we're only limited by our own imaginations and what we can do. And, uh, and we have some really uh, great people who have joined the IPOS team. We have some tremendous uh, industry partners who are leaning forward uh, to adapt their technologies to meet the needs of people across this country, regardless of who they are or, or if they have access and functional needs or limited English proficiency. Uh, and even some things with uh, that we're doing with uh, technologies that help assist people who have cognitive challenges. And so I'm excited about you know the future and what uh, is ahead of us. And I just look forward to the continued partnership with not only our federal partners, uh, but with our state, local, tribal, and territorial uh, partners as well, uh, and industry, uh, because oftentimes the things that uh, we need to reach people or to provide services are oftentimes provided by our industry partners. And so uh, I thank them for their support, but I also challenge them to, to look uh, at those technologies that they, uh, they make available to us and to continue to evolve those things to meet the needs of people in this country. Thanks for listening to this episode of Before, During, and After, a podcast from FEMA. If you'd like to learn more about this episode or other topics, or have ideas for future episodes, visit us at fema.gov podcast.